Welcome to Making Connections, a WMNT series on diversifying our future. Next up is a press conference held online on June 29th to present the National Economic Transition Platform, also called NIT. Over 80 local, regional, and national organizations and leaders work together to develop a framework for large-scale investments to assist communities hardest hit by the changing coal economy. The platform is built on community-driven solutions. The effort was led by the Just Transition Fund, and its executive director, Heidi Binko, led off the presentation. Thank you for joining us today for the release of our National Economic Transition Platform. My name is Heidi Binko, and I am the co-founder and executive director of the Just Transition Fund. Since 2015, we've been addressing the economic distress in communities across the United States where both coal plants and mines have closed. We find, fund, and scale innovative, local, community-driven models to help the people in the places hardest hit by the changing coal economy. In early 2019, the Just Transition Fund launched our National Economic Transition Initiative, or our NET initiative, because we saw an opportunity for local leaders from affected communities from all across the United States to come together, unite around their common needs, and craft a vision for an ambitious federal coal transition program. From our national perspective, the fund identified the country's best examples of community economic development, workforce, and community organizing that was happening in coal communities. And we brought together the most visionary local, tribal, and labor leaders. After an extensive year-long engagement process, which was supported by the fund, our planning team produced the National Economic Transition Platform. Built on seven pillars, the platform presents a framework for federal action that will create vibrant, resilient, and equitable economies with thriving local businesses and family-sustaining jobs. Um, the seven aspects are, of the pillar include, number one, investing in supporting local leaders and organizations to lead the transition, especially black, brown women in indigenous-led organizations. Number two, support local small businesses and entrepreneurship. The third pillar is provide a bridge for workers to quality family-sustaining jobs. Fourth, reclaim and remediate coal sites. Fifth, improve physical and social infrastructure. And our sixth pillar is hold coal companies accountable during bankruptcies. And then the seventh and final pillar focuses on creating and improving access to make sure that communities have the resources that they need. So today, we're calling on federal policymakers to make a big, bold investment in an ambitious new national community and worker transition program. The livelihoods of thousands of communities and tens of millions of people that rely on us to get this right. Creating economic opportunity has never been so important, especially as the COVID pandemic and the resulting economic recession are making conditions in these communities even more dire. So now I'd like to introduce you to six of our speakers who represent a variety of coal communities across the country and a range of disciplines. Our speakers today include Brendan Dennison, who is the CEO, CEO of Coalfield Development Corporation, Veronica Coptis, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Coalfield Justice, Jimmy Slevin, who is the President of the Utility Workers Union of America, Tony Skrlunis, who is a team leader with Trod Awaken, Peter Hilly, who is the president of the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development, and Dennis Doherty, who is the executive director of the Colorado AFL-CIO. And with that, I'd like to turn the call over to our first speaker, uh, Brendan from Coalfield Development. Brendan, go ahead. 
Thank you, Heidi, and hello, everybody. Uh, Coalfield Development is an organization based in southern West Virginia in coal country, and we invest in and incubate social enterprises, and the social enterprises are designed to, A, put people back to work in an area that even before COVID has struggled with very high rates of poverty and unemployment, and B, our enterprises are designed to model what a more sustainable and diversified economy can look like. We help start the first solar installation company in our community. We have a sustainable agriculture business, and we have a collar construction crew, just to name a few examples. So we're trying to build the workforce of the future. We're trying to develop the, the job training and, and the job skills that are going to be needed for the new economy. And we're so excited to be part of uh, the NET because we feel like this represents the kind of level of investment that's really going to be needed to get this transition right and to not leave in the dust the communities that have really powered this country um, for, for several generations now. And, you know, for me personally, a lot of times I feel like uh, coal communities are thought of as collateral in the climate change discussion. You know, we're going to have to make a change and that's going to hurt those coal communities and that's too bad. And so, yes, we should help them. Uh, but it's like a burden. It's thought of as a burden to this transition. And really what I see here in West Virginia is coal communities can be the leaders of this transition. And our workforce has a lot of the skills that are going to be needed in the more sustainable, cleaner, and really fairer, more fair uh, economy of the future. So we're, we're thrilled to be a part of this um, effort, and we really believe in this document that's been put forward. And with that, I would love to introduce Veronica Koptis, who's Executive Director of the Center for Coalfield Justice. Veronica? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, so as Brandon said, I'm Veronica Koptis. I'm with the Center for Coalfield Justice. We are an environmental and economic justice advocacy organization that works in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. We deeply invest in those that are most impacted by the problems facing our community. And many of our leaders and members grew up adjacent to coal mining operations, and also several of them come directly from coal mining families. Our local economy in southwestern Pennsylvania and infrastructure are dependent on coal mining operations, but we are seeing the signs of big companies bailing on our towns, as they have done so in so many other places across the country, including some of the partners on this call with me today. COVID-19 has drained what little resources we have left by shuttering local businesses and putting people living paycheck to paycheck out of work. Unlike in some other coal fields across the country, southwestern Pennsylvania still has significant active coal operations that are profitable and potentially could be for years. And this has upheld the political control um, on our system from the coal industry. And so a lot of the work we have been doing is one of the values in the NEP and why we are excited to participate in it is investing deeply in local leadership. So last summer, our team canvassed these communities in Green and Washington counties to hear what they wanted to see change for their local economy and teach them and work with them on how to get engaged. There was overwhelming support for things very similar in the NEP um, seven steps, which was cleaning up the messes that were left behind by industry, increasing access to good unionized paying jobs, and really looking at our communities holistically and how to improve them from education, healthcare, food access, et cetera. 
And these local leaders are now working to push elected officials who have been resistant to addressing any transition planning needs to move that process forward, being driven by the community. And our vision for our, our communities moving forward have to require recognizing the inequities in the access to jobs of people of color, women, and young folks, and ensure that as we transition, service sector jobs are valued and paid a living wage, just like the co-worker jobs are and have been in the past. And also that in Appalachia, particularly caregiving, which so many women across the coal fields have done unpaid for decades, is honored and compensated moving forward. Our vision is that our schools are thriving, that tax bases are created, not pushing that burden on the already impoverished to fill the gaps um, in our education system. Our parks are protected and our access to healthcare is readily available. And unfortunately in Southwestern Pennsylvania, our federal leadership legislators who represent our communities have largely failed workers and residents in this region by keeping their loyalty to CEOs and shareholders but now in this critical moment, they have a beautiful opportunity to stand on the right side of history with other national leaders across the country and finally change the path for Coalfield communities and the rest of the country to deeply invest in these struggling places across the country where solutions are being pushed by brilliant residents and innovators who are the most impacted by the problems. And with that, I will trans, um, uh, send you all over to Jimmy Slevin, who is president of the U Utility Worker Union of America. Thank you, Veronica. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. uh, as Veronica said, my name is Jimmy Slevin. I'm the president of the U Utility Workers Union of America. We represent about 50,000 members working in America's utility sector, including in the electric, gas, water, steam, and related professionals uh, industries. Unfortunately, our members have witnessed the impacts of power plant closure firsthand, including the loss of hundreds of jobs for people directly employed in the operations and maintenance of these large facilities. As, you, as we all know, the rippling effects go, go far beyond job losses. When communities lose annual tax revenue, education suffers, home values drop, and the fabric of these communities change forever. I'll give you an example. For our members impacted at plant closure, in Adams County with Dayton Power and Light. The facility directly and indirectly employed nearly 700 people at two coal pile plants, including 490 employees and about 200 contracted employees. These two plants generated around $9 million in annual property tax for the county. The Manchester School District alone received $5.6 million in annual revenue from these plants. Our members whose impact experienced a double blow in losing their livelihoods in their communities. So you could see the challenges for the impact by closures range from difficult to nearly insurmountable. The fact is coal plant closures are changing regions and ways of life too rapid for small communities to adapt on their own. We cannot allow these closures to continue in an unimaginable fashion. The Just Transition Fund National Economic Transition Framework offers lawmakers and community leaders an, an inclusive, community-driven approach to address this urgent crisis. This framework goes far beyond towards recognizing the contributions made by these workers and the communities to build the nation. We fully support all seven pillars outlined here, specifically the providing a bridge for workers and holding coal, com 
companies accountable for their bankruptcy, for pensions and benefit programs our members paid into resonates with our memberships. Thank you for all the organizations put their head together on this important framework that will help provide workers and communities the opportunity to remain vibrant places where families live and work. I also want to send a thanks to Jim Harrison from the UWA for working on this. And we're especially thankful to the Blue-Green Alliance for their expertise that brought this work. The work underscores why the UWA is part of the BGA Alliance partnership. Now, tens of, tens of millions of people in these communities are depending on us now to make the bold and economic investment to get this transition right. I appreciate your time today. And now I'm going to turn it over to Tony Skrillos from Tribal Awakening. Thank you, James. And good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you're calling in from. Uh, my name is Tony Skrillanis. I am a member of the Navajo Nation. I come from a community of Black Mesa. I was raised uh, right near the coal mines, and my dad was a welder. Um, he That was his career. You know, he retired from that and became a community leader. But what we do with Tribe Awakening is we're heavily involved in transition work. We advise um, solar development. We actually are partners in a uh, company called Navajo Power where we're doing the first utility scale work uh, on Navajo uh, that's ever been done. Uh, we advise on re uh, retail centers, um, uh, tourism, and so th th that's really where there's massive opportunity. Why this is important <clears throat> to us is that um, these uh, power companies currently um, have uh, resulted in uh, uh, our tribes becoming very dependent. Uh, in, in the past, this was really the only economic option for tribes. Um, when uh, the treaties were set up and when the modern economies were developed, a lot of our governments were um, created really to approve mineral leases and oil exploration. And so our tribal governments are set up to really be built around these, these kinds of industries. But now we, we all realize that there's a need to transition and it's, it's a serious uh, uh, issue to us. Um, just for example, we had a recent uh, power plant closed here called the Navajo Generating Station and adjacent uh, Kienta coal mine. Uh, this closure resulted in an 80% reduction in revenues to the Hopi tribe and a 25% reduction in revenue to the Navajo Nation. And if you look at the, the, the communities, I mean, the, the, like Hopi has 12 communities, population of around 30,000. Navajo has uh, 110 uh, chapters. Uh, they're rural communities with a population of over 300,000. Uh, so these are significant revenue drivers, but the, 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 the real opportunity and challenge is that everything around us is moving towards renewable energy. Everything around us is, is about a movement to get off uh, resource extractive industry and coal mining and power plants. Uh, California is going towards 100% renewables, Colorado, New Mexico, um, uh, Utah at some point will be having those discussions, Arizona. So these are our markets and I think the handwriting is on the wall. So why this is important, this platform is important to us is that uh, 
it really lays out. It, 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 it's been done, uh, de developed with a, a major tribal participation. We've had community meetings. We've had a lot of outreach. Uh, there are several of us that are tribal members that are uh, NGO leaders in our communities, and we've helped put this together, and we really have had a voice, and we really want the nation to uh, acknowledge and to, to partner up with us on, on this transition, and we think that that transition is going to be beautiful. Uh, we really see opportunities in all areas of um, uh, uh, resulting from this platform, so thank you, and at this point, I want to. Uh, I, I have the honor of introducing Peter Hilly, who's president of the MACED. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Tony, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. Uh, as Tony said, my name is Peter Hilly, and I'm the president of the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development in Kentucky. The coal fields of Appalachia, like coal-producing communities around the country, literally fueled the growth of the entire nation. Despite that, the coal economy didn't create lasting prosperity in these communities. In fact, today, these are some of the most economically disadvantaged places in the United States. These places that have given so much now bear the brunt of changes in global energy markets. They sacrifice lives, health, water, ecosystems. There is a debt to be paid. Justice demands that we bring new investment to these places, the investment needed to build a new economy, the investment needed to revitalize these communities, the investment needed to educate people of all ages to be prepared for new opportunities, and the investment needed to create demonstrations of what the new economy can look like, whether that is local food, healthcare, the creative economy, sustainable forestry, tourism, or clean energy. The second pillar of our national economic transition platform calls upon policymakers to invest in this kind of restorative economic development in our communities. Here are just a few examples of what we're talking about. Over the past year, the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development has invested more than a million dollars in solar installations for small businesses and nonprofits in the coal fields of Kentucky, saving money for these vital local enterprises and making them more resilient as, ener as energy prices rise. This is also reducing their carbon footprint. We've invested in a local wood products manufacturer, helping them double in size, adding good jobs with benefits and using sustainably harvest timber. We've helped addiction recovery centers get established and grow meeting a critical need. And we've trained former coal miners to work in the new clean energy economy and helped them start their own businesses in this growing market. There's a lot more work to be done, but there is hope and determination in these places and a fierce commitment to a brighter future. These communities can thrive again. They just need a fair chance. And that's what the National Economic Transition Platform is all about. And now I'd like to introduce Dennis Dougherty, Executive Director of the Colorado AFL-CIO. Dennis? Hey, thank you, Peter. So uh, the Colorado AFL-CIO represents 185 affiliate unions whose membership totals more than 130,000 hardworking Coloradans. And we are an expression of the hopes and aspirations of the working families of Colorado. Um, as we know, America is in the middle of an energy transition. And here in Colorado, we knew we needed to have a conversation about getting ahead of this transition 
in fulfilling our moral obligation to coal-impacted workers and communities. That's why last year, um, alongside environmental allies and the Blue-Green Alliance, we fought for and passed legislation targeted on workers and communities impacted by our state's declining use of coal. We know that working people should not suffer economically due to changing demand in the energy economy and a shift to cleaner and cheaper energy sources. We cannot leave workers or communities behind as these changes happen in our economy, which are also the changes necessary to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. A transition that's fair for workers isn't something that will just happen organically. We have to choose to invest in the economic diversification of both communities and workers. We have to make the choice. We have to choose to make the jobs in the clean economy, family-sustaining union jobs. And that's why we were excited to be part of the effort to work with the Just Transition Fund and partners from across coal communities and groups throughout the Just Transition space, like the Blue-Green Alliance, to develop the National Economic Transition Platform. Critically, this platform reflects many of the ideas and learnings from our bills here, which we are analyzing in Colorado, which includes a robust package of support for workers, wage replacement, uh, ensuring health care and retired benefits, and retirement benefits, and support for pay training. It also calls for the establishment of an advisory committee, um, the National Economic Trends uh, Platform, Economic Transition Platform does, uh, which we do as well here in Colorado, to ensure that key stakeholders, including labor unions, community leaders, uh, and others, have a seat at the table when decisions are being made. Uh, it also links to projects that are community-driven and economic development efforts uh, to ensure that the project actually meets the needs of the community. We hope this platform serves as a roadmap for federal policymakers to the big, bold investment in economic growth and solutions that work for everybody. Back to you, Heidi. Great, Dennis. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, and thank you to all of our speakers today. Um, I'm going to throw it back now to the operator who will help us and introduce the, the Q&A. And we'll take our first question from James Bruggers with Inside Climate News. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thank you for um, making this available to us today. I appreciate it. But was there a price tag that was put on, on this plan? Uh, it would be one question if you have any idea about what kind of a dollar investment do you think is needed to get it to the scale that would actually impact communities in a positive way? And the more um, specific examples of like, what are the, what you folks, how you see this, um, you know, what, what are the, the programs that, it, that you would invest in would be helpful. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for, um, for your, for your question. Um, and in terms of the, the, the federal price tag, what, what we've really done is, Try to think about um, try to really balance the the creation of an ambitious program with the understanding that it needs a big bold investment. But we're trying to balance that with the cost of really creating sustainable and inclusive economic growth against the against what the cost of the status quo has been, which really puts the livelihoods of people and millions of people um, at risk as a lot of um, key infrastructure needs like education and healthcare and other things crumble. And so we really feel like these coal communities have been have been forgotten for too long. And we don't have a number in the platform, but we are calling for an ambitious and bold investment at this time. Um, and why don't I actually open up this question to see if any of the other speakers have commentary on that aspect of the question before we before we talk about the second piece of the question. Yeah, this is Brandon uh, with Coalfield Development. I might just add that you know this is it's been a community-driven process. So um, 
you know, most of us are not policy analysts by trade. And so we wanted to be really thoughtful. We didn't want to pick an arbitrary number and slap it on there. Uh, but we're committed to the process to nail that down. And we all know it, it needs to be a lot more than what it has been so far. Uh, this is Peter Hilly. And I just want to observe that um, the Appalachian Regional Commission, through the power program over the last several years, has uh, put about $250 million of additional funding into just the Appalachian region. And we can see a lot of good results from that, but I think it would be hard to describe it as more than a really good start. So uh, as we think about the ambition of this, we've, we've got to think about orders of magnitude beyond that. And I believe that the recent uh, investments in the recovery to the COVID pandemic uh, have given us a, a different view and a different way of thinking about federal investment that's needed to support the economy. So um, we are, as Heidi said, calling for some serious ambition here. Thanks. Um, operator, can we perhaps go on to the second question? In the platform, a lot of the buckets are, are things that we've heard about before for how to invest in a ground-up uh, Appalachian uh, you know, economic sustainable economy. Um, so, I, what, what's the new ask here? I mean, what what needs to be done? What that that you know hasn't already been worked on? Like, what what's the what are you going to Congress with? Like, what is the big ask? Uh, before I open that up to our speakers, I I would say that we really we really modeled this over after the um, the power program, which we felt like was. A, a good start uh, to addressing these issues. And one of the things about power that was really appealing was the fact that it it had at its core interagency cooperation. I think what we've all seen in the last number of years is that addressing this issue is going to be really complex and intersectional, and it's going to require a lot of different coordination, not only by different agencies, but across different sectors of government between the, between the federal and the state level. And so what we're seeing with this platform is more of an intersectional approach, one that is, um, one that is more comprehensive than anything that, that we've seen to date. I, I think the very short answer to what we're asking for that's different uh, is one word, scale. Uh, we have proven out a lot of approaches that can be a part of this comprehensive um, need and, and addressing this need uh, in these communities. What we need is the federal commitment to take those approaches to scale. Uh, this is Tony Scalanis. I think uh, what's different, too, is the inclusion of uh, tribal communities. Uh, we, as the participants participation has shown we have uh, communities are heavily dependent on uh, coal mines and power plants and we're all facing transition and it's very unique because a lot of our nations are sovereign uh, and we also have uh, uh, the, the, the cultural differences so what this platform really acknowledges is those differences and really works to include uh, the tribal communities and the opportunities that we have a lot of us, we, we have power plants, uh, coal mines, and a lot of uh, power, you know, um, power infrastructure, power lines running across our land. Um, and a lot of our communities have uh, uh, grown up with this. You know? So we want to be part of the transition, and we have real strong strategies. We think that tribes can be really benefiting from uh, uh, a strong transition. They can actually 
change the future too. Instead of uh, being passive um, uh, participants where they're just leasing the land and getting uh, revenue from taxes, the tribes uh, now assert that they want to actually co-own and drive the development. So a lot of the the the, the, um, the the values and the principles that are laid out in this platform really support that. You know, support local leaders and building them up. Support the, the investment and the, the the economic analysis and the tools to 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 really make that happen. We'll take our last question from Catherine Hamilton with the Energy Gang. Please go ahead. Um, my question is around investment. I know you've talked about having big federal investment in this type of program, and it makes all kinds of sense to me. But another piece might be all of these this private sector funding out there that is looking for places to land and doesn't always pick your locations as places to invest because of the perceived risks. And I'm just wondering if you all have thought about how do you actually try to leverage not just federal dollars, but how do you bring in private sector financing and, and have this sort of economic development be really attractive to, to those funders? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, this is Peter. Um, well, I, I think that uh, this is one of the ways that we can use federal dollars is to leverage more of that private investment. And we can do that um, with um, – with a variety of, of tools and ways that we build capital stacks so that uh, so that the first risk money maybe is coming from the federal government and that helps to protect um, the, uh, the other investments or uh, we have loss reserves that are provided by the federal government. We've established some tools like that and it really helps to leverage uh, those additional investments. Uh, the, the venture capital is heavily concentrated on the east and west coast. It, it doesn't come in uh, to the rural areas across the country, to Appalachia in particular. Um, and, and frankly, a lot of what we need is not so much those big multi-million dollar uh, deals as investment that allows for hundreds of small businesses to flourish in ways that really recreate communities as places where people can and choose to live. And I think as, as people contemplate the recovery from the, the pandemic that we're in, uh, we're going to see a lot of people looking to rural places and saying, hey, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a better place for me. And then we've got to create all of the amenities that make these livable places for them. And that's, that's food, that's health care, that's uh, infrastructure, water, broadband, of course, is a big part of that. So lots of opportunities for investment. This is uh, Jimmy Slevin from the Utility Workers again. Um, so it, it, it's, it's vitally important to understand that as the plant's been closing, um, there has been some great structures already there and investments back into it. Um, you know, too long have we forgotten and just closed plants and walked away from a lot of those grid structures. Um, roads have been built and, and uh, schools have been built on some of the back spaces from these plants. Um, we need to make sure that they're they're used and not forgotten. And then also that uh, as we look at community base, th these are men and women who have worked in these areas for a long time, have generations have, have, have uh, worked at these plants and these mines. Uh, they don't want to leave. They, they want to build their communities. They don't want them to, to, to just uh, be dumped on the wayside. And there's a lot of talent and, and skill sets there. And uh, that's why it's big about community-driven um, because they know the best for their community, and, and that's why it's vitally important to get the private investors to understand it. Also, those who are 
leaving us, those plants that are leaving us, hold them accountable. Um, they've made millions off these communities, and we have to hold them accountable to what they're doing and just walking away with and, and hold them accountable to that community because they deserve it. The people of the community deserve it. The, the youth of that community deserve better, too. And, Heidi, sorry, this is Tony. I wanted to add that, um, uh, you know, uh, as tribal peoples, uh, we're not moving anywhere. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the movement is going to be temporary uh, after these closures. <clears throat> but uh, I think what the the perfect uh, blend, you know, where the the, the the non the federal dollars, the public dollars, really goes into helping our communities get educated and get organized. We can do economic planning. We can build capacity of local leaders, uh, create local institutions. A lot of the dollar types that Peter talked about in terms of venture cat impact investment, even grant dollars, uh, very little of those dollars ever reach Indian country. There was a recent study that showed that less than 1% of all uh, philanthropic dollars reaches tribal nations, and of that, even less goes to tribally controlled entities. Uh, no venture cap at all, very little impact investment. There's a real cultural divide, and that's where the public dollars can really help build that capacity so that some of those dollars reach our communities. I think we're, we're being recognized now, and, and uh, we're, we're, we're finally in, in the space and in, in, in the discussions uh, nationally, but uh, we really need to use some of those public dollars to build that wherewithal so we can access those uh, uh, private dollars. That was a press conference held June 29th to unveil the NET platform. You can find out more online at nationaleconomictransition.org. Making Connections is brought to you by WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Find out more at makingconnectionsnews.org.